Hi, everyone. Welcome back on today's episode of the Pinnacle Podcast. I am so pleased to announce that we have Brent Jackson with us. He is the Chief Medical Officer of Mercy General Hospital with us in Sacramento. So welcome, Brent. We are so excited to have you on today's episode. Good afternoon, Amanda. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. I am Dr. Brent Jackson. I'm the VP and Chief Medical Officer of Mercy General Hospital here in Sacramento. Just a bit of background, I am a general surgeon by training. I practiced for about 15 years before deciding to make the transition into administration. Started out as a medical director at an independent practice association, then the physician advisor here at Mercy General, followed by coming into the chief medical officer role, and I've been in this role for about two years now, a little over two years. That's great. That's great. Yeah. So you have just a wealth of knowledge in this space. You've been working, like you said, for years and years and years, fairly new to the CMO role for Mercy General Hospital, but just your wealth of knowledge, you know, makes you so credible for the role. So that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today on our episode is how you were able to navigate this recent pandemic, what that was like for you as a newly minted CMO, how you supported your staff, what that was like dealing with their anxiety, and then kind of how you see the future of the healthcare industry. Where is it heading? So that's kind of what was on the topic for today's podcast episode. And I think you were just such a perfect guest to be able to speak to these things. So thank you again for coming on our podcast. Um, So let's jump right in. So you were fairly new to the role. You were just newly minted CMO, just getting into the swing of things. And then boom, a worldwide pandemic is upon us. (laughs) So how did you handle that? What was that like? So I'll share with you that when I first stepped into the CMO role about a year prior to the pandemic, It was a fairly steep learning curve to begin with. And just as I think I'm seeing the top of the learning curve, here comes a pandemic. And not a pandemic like H1N1, but something that is far more, something that's more on par of like the Spanish flu of 1918. Hmm. Something people die from, a lot of them, and spreads fast. I had to learn an entirely new skill set with no playbook. And like every CMO across the country had to do. And I would walk into the doctor's lounge and the news would be on TV. Northern Italy or New York would be shown being overrun. And the docs would say, as soon as I walked in, they would point to the TV and say, this is going to be us next week. What are we doing to prepare for this? Hmm. And, you know, I had to have answers for them, either have answers for them or tell them that we're working on it. And they had to have a, had to make sure they had a sense of confidence in us. Oh my gosh. I could only imagine the fear, you know, circulating around. I remember too, when it first hit, it was so new so scary that, you know, it, it was going to be, like you said, upon us very, very soon. And how do you prepare for something like that, especially leading such a huge staff? So what was that like? How did you prepare your staff for this, you know, oncoming pandemic? So what we really need to do is prepare the hospital. And then once we prepared the hospital, then we could prepare the staff. They weren't going to be prepared unless we were prepared, if that makes sense. So our leadership team established our hospital incident command center. We set up dedicated COVID units in the hospital, both for general acute care and for ICU care. We came up with a surge plan in the event we did get hit with a large number of patients. We looked at items in shortage like PPE and triaged them across the house so as to mitigate the greatest risk with a short supply. I'm sure you heard PPE was in very short supply across the country in the beginning of this. Um, 
and we did our best to procure more. But more importantly, we involved physicians and staff in the in these decisions to ensure some ownership and buy-in. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. So you guys kind of formulated a game plan as quickly as you can. Um, I know when we previously had talked, you could sense anxiety starting to rise in your staff. Tell me a little bit about that and how you took it upon yourself to handle that sort of anxiety that was rising. Yeah. So like I mentioned, I would walk into the doctor's lounge and these news stories would be on that showed it looked like, you know, it was going to be the apocalypse. Right. Mm-hmm. And I knew that, it, you know, the news tends to be hyperbolic, but, you know, sensationalism gets ratings. So I knew that it probably wasn't that bad in my gut. I felt that, but it certainly was something to be taken seriously. And so um, I'll mention that pre-pandemic, I frequently had breakfast and lunch in the doctor's lounge, which gave me the opportunity to get to know many of the physicians there, many of whom were not in leadership roles, but were, um, I hate to use the word rank and file for physicians, but were physicians who were not in leadership roles. And it was there that I got kind of the most accurate pulse of what was going on in the medical staff. And as I mentioned previously, the docs were pretty anxious about this. And I spent a lot of time articulating our plans for this to them um, so that they understood the depth of planning that we were doing. And also pre-pandemic, I have a newsletter that I sent out. It's called Happy Friday Docs. And it was a lighthearted newsletter that would have pictures of recognitions in it with, with the verbiage from the recognition. I would make I was still some humor into it, gave updates about what was going on around the hospital, and I always tried to weave a story through it so that it had kind of was engaging for the reader. And the feedback that I got was that it was fairly well received, and it went out to over 1,100 people, 1,100 medical staff. And so when COVID hit, as I saw what was going on with the anxieties in the medical staff and non-COVID-related meetings fell off my calendar so we could all prepare for COVID. I had a lot more free time, and I took it upon myself to educate myself with everything that I could find on this virus. The epidemiology, how it spreads, um, just everything there was to learn. And, And I think we all know there was a lot of misinformation. There was a lot of junk science. I converted my newsletter into a COVID newsletter, but kept the same writing style. I kept it lighthearted. Anything that was misinformation or junk science, I would systematically debunk. Mm. in it and continued the recognitions, continued rounding on, on the staff, but getting back to the newsletter, I would continue, I would write it, weave a story through it still and try to drive a message of calm perspective. You know, things like the virus doesn't have a brain. It can't hunt you down. You have a brain. This virus only spreads through opportunity and your weapon in this war is just to deny the virus opportunity. And you know how mm. to do that. Mm. Yeah. Just think like that, just to put it into perspective, you know? Yeah. And many of the docs would really thank me for taking the time to write these. And what, what I'd really like to say about this is it helped me develop and strengthen the relationships I have with the medical staff. Mm. And it really speaks to relationship building as a fundamental element to effective leadership. You know, there was an article in Harvard Business Review that looked at the three elements of trust, which they broke down as relationships expertise, and consistency. And they look to see which of these is most important in instilling trust, engendering trust that others have in in their leaders. Mm. And what they found was relationships were the most important. Mm. Someone could have no expertise or consistency, but if they had relationships, they would be in the 60th percentile for trust. Wow. And if someone had all three, they were usually in the 80th plus percentile. Mm. So... Obviously, the goal is to have all three, but 
I bring this up because one can't lead if one can't be trusted. Yeah. Yep. And people have to know you have their backs, you know, otherwise they're going to look out for their own perceived self interest and not for the greater good. Mm. And then it becomes hurting cats. Yeah. And with all that said, developing those critical relationships with our medical staff, either pre pandemic in person or during the pandemic with my newsletter gave me the trust I needed to effectively drive down the anxiety of the collective medical staff and help forge our alliance in the battle against COVID-19. I think this is just so fantastic, you know, that you recognize this anxiety that was increasing in your staff and that you started forming relationships with them and that, that you recognize that that was just as important as preparing your hospital for the technical side of things, the on onset of incoming patients, like you said, the, the lack of medical supplies, but you were also watching out for your own staff. And I, I just think it's so unique for a CMO to be able to be sitting in the physician's lounge with other doctors and nurses and just just hearing from their perspective, I think, really sets you apart and puts you in a place where you you are very respected now because you had your people's best interests in, in mind through this pandemic, which I think is fantastic. And just the fact that, you, like you said, you added humor in with your newsletter, it's just such a... Um, an, such a unique opportunity to connect with your staff in the face of such adversity. So I love that, that story. I'm so glad that you were able to share that with us. So um, how did you see COVID really affect your hospital and the community there in Sacramento? So we got lucky in many sense. We were never overrun like Northern Italy, New York, or even more recently, Southern California. Our first surge was more like a speed bump and our strategies for mitigating risk, you know, kind of seemed sound. They were kind of a little bit of a stress test. And then when a much larger summer surge came, it was just business as usual. Some minor cracks exposed themselves, but we were able to patch those fairly easily. And then when the even larger winter surge came, it was a non-issue. We weathered it well. Um, we continued all our normal operations, you know, with the uh, COVID precautions in place. We never had to cut back on elective surgeries once we started ramping them back up last year. And overall, our communities been pretty good about masking, distancing, and getting the vaccine when it became available. So all that helped as well. And I would like to kind of a source of pride. You know, we wanted to, our goal was to make the hospital safer than a trip to the grocery store. Mm. And we only had one documented case of patient to staff transmission of COVID during this whole pandemic. Wow. That's incredible. That is a great statistic to be very proud of. That's awesome. Very, very cool. So it wasn't too bad in your kind of area, but like you said, your staff was prepared. Their anxiety was under control and they were able to handle it well once the insurge kind of was upon you in summer. What about your processes and your management style? Throughout this pandemic, did your process ever change or your management style? What did you kind of learn from, from this pandemic? So as a surgeon, I didn't recognize it at the time when I was practicing, but you know, surgeons are leaders in the operating room. We are the captain of the ship and, and the buck stops with us. And surgeons in general, and I'll just say that in general, uh, there are exceptions, tend to have a more directive leadership style. Do this, do that, don't do this, don't do that. And it doesn't, that's, that leadership style does not translate to a role like chief medical officer. 
this role really requires more of a servant leadership approach. And that was something I had to learn early on as part of the learning curve. And in the pandemic, it really drove home to me the power that is in servant leadership. Um, There's no other leadership style that would have worked in this pandemic. Hmm. I think that's very interesting because I feel like a lot of people in your position as CMO would not say that servant leadership is the the go-to kind of leadership style, <laughs> especially during a worldwide pandemic. So I think that it is very courageous of you to approach it as such, where you have the, the needs of your staff and the needs of those around you before kind of this uh, perfectionist or type A kind of leadership style. So I think that is is really interesting and obviously contributed to the success of your hospital. So I love that. Kind of now that we're getting past this wave of the pandemic, things are starting to slowly decrease in numbers. Things are starting to get back to normal a little bit. Um, What channels of healthcare do you see increasing post-COVID-19? So it's a good question. And I think the pandemic really accelerated the development and adoption of telehealth and other digital modalities. I also really hope that there's a renewed emphasis on preventative medicine. You know, we saw risk factors emerge for poor outcomes if one was infected with COVID-19, and those were obesity, diabetes mellitus, hypertension, heart disease, and many, if not most, of these conditions are preventable. And digital home monitoring could really be deployed to better manage or even prevent these conditions. Exactly. We're seeing the same thing. I'm so glad that you said that because as my mountain mover, as we're providing virtual assistance for the healthcare space, we are seeing that sort of channel increase as well. Telehealth has just been exploding recently in the last few months. And I agree. We talk a lot to our physicians about just additional ways to increase the revenue stream. And I think remote patient monitoring is one of those as um, this virtual space kind of increases over the next few years, potentially. I think it's a great way for physicians to get in front of those patients who may not want to come into the doctor's office or who may be reluctant to go to the hospital or something like that, to be able to change their lives within their home setting to be monitored by a personalized virtual assistant that's checking in on them, that's very relatable, that's making sure, you know, they're doing all the things they need to be doing is is fantastic. I think it's a great way for our physicians and those who are listening to, you know, increase their revenue stream. So kind of touching on that, how do you think these new channels can be beneficial to our client base? I know I've talked to you. We have a lot of small private practices who hire virtual assistants so they can become more efficient. Our VAs are handling a lot of the back-end admin tasks so they can just focus on increasing their revenue and providing better patient care. That's really what our whole business model is about. So how do you think these new channels that are opening up can benefit kind of our smaller physician population? Yeah, so technologies such as digital receptionists could really decrease overhead and improve the financial viability of the practices. You know, some telehealth business may be quicker, which would improve efficiency and patient throughput, minimizing also the need for office staff to man um, man the um, waiting areas to call patients back, etc. 
And finally, insurance contracts have many population health metrics within their contracts to better manage chronic diseases like diabetes and hypertension. And digital home monitoring could aid in this and therefore lead them to increase reimbursement via quality bonuses. Exactly. Yep. And a lot of our virtual assistants, you know, uh, there's a lot of CPT codes that don't require a physician to be able to monitor those patients. So it's a great way for our virtual assistants to get involved. So kind of wrapping up, where do you see the healthcare industry heading and how would you say you could stay relevant in these changing times? That's a good question because things have changed rapidly and changes aren't permanent, but change is. Mm. There will obviously be more digitization simply because the technology is there. For example, the EHR has impeded the traditional delivery of care just because of the um, amount of work that it takes to enter all this information. This gives opportunity for any technology that can somewhat mitigate that impact on the physician workflow. And then AI and machine learning will also play an expanding role both in diagnostics, optimization, as well as population health. But we also have to be mindful of what data we use to allow these devices to learn. Otherwise, um, it'll be garbage in, garbage out. Mm, And we really want that. And finally, there's going to be a push for hospital-at-home programs. We're already kind of seeing this. And coupled with some of these home monitoring technologies, this is another opportunity for digitization. Mm, yeah, I completely agree. Kind of last bonus question. I know um, this is not really something that we talked about, but just as your hospital kind of looks to the future, where are you guys looking personally as your own hospital? What are your hopes and dreams for for your hospital and for your staff and for yourself as well in the next couple of years? So that's a good question too. And thank you for that. You know, the pandemic's brought on a lot of challenges and it's stressed the staff, it's stressed the medical staff, it's stressed um, our finances because we had to cease elective operations early last year. And our hospital, as well as, as I understand, every hospital across the nation is still trying to dig out of that financial hole. So we are fortunate that we're pretty much back at our baseline volume, at least our procedural volume. Some of our other inpatient volume and the ED volume in particular has been down. You know, is that volume coming back? We don't know. If, if not, then we're going to have fi- either find ways to replace that revenue or to improve efficiencies so that we can widen our margin a bit. Hmm. But I think the most important thing is going to be taking care of our people going forward. Yeah. Um, the docs and, and the nurses here have been very resilient, and we've taken a lot of effort to prevent burnout in them. And that's paid dividends because although they're weary of the pandemic, I read articles about nurses leaving the nursing field in droves just because they're just completely wiped out from this. Hmm. Wherever we are nationwide, our job's not done once the pandemic is over. Our job as leaders, we are really going to have to provide wellness support for our our employees and our um, physicians and APPs going forward because some of this may have a delayed impact on them. Mm. And we need to find ways that we can get them to open up and let us support them. We need to know what their pain points are so we can provide specific support. And getting back to what I was talking about before about leadership is it all depends upon relationships and trust. Mm. Yes. Yep. I completely agree. Well, I just thank you so much, Brent, for being on our podcast today. I think you just have a wealth of knowledge. 
in this space, having walked through it yourself. Um, just the fact that you're in that physician's lounge, you're, you're getting to know your staff. You're so intentional about building relationships with them. You had just a, an amazing COVID experience in terms of being able to be prepared for the oncoming surge and also looking to the future as well. So I am so thankful that you were able to be on our podcast. And for any one of those who is listening, I hope you were able to find something encouraging out of this podcast and a little nugget for the future of healthcare. So thank you again, Brent, and I hope you have a great day. Amanda, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Awesome. Amen.